Greetings, everyone. I'm Bahar Azmi, the Legal Director at the Center for Constitutional Rights. I'm joined by my colleague and Executive Director, Vince Warren. Hey, Bahar. It's great to be with you. Before we get started, I wanted to just note that we are all obviously facing this harrowing global pandemic and hoping um, all our colleagues and all our partners and friends are, and their loved ones are safe and healthy. Um, and we wanted to have a, a brief conversation um, around rights during crisis and rights after crisis. Um, uh, Vince and I have been through a couple together, 9-11 uh, and the Trump election. Um, and that gives us a little bit of perspective on this most recent crisis. Um, we all know that this public health emergency will disproportionately harm the most vulnerable in society. It is already vastly disproportionately affecting um, those who can't afford to stay at home. Um, it actually has a pretty prominent racial um, dimension given uh, segregation, redlining, um, poor access to health care for uh, minority communities. Um, and it presents a real risk, I think, of an attempt at seizing power, manipulating power, and, you know, a further lur lurch into authoritarianism. Um, so we wanted to have this conversation about some lessons we've learned um, in responding to crisis, what we can foresee and, and how we should be vigilant. How does that sound, Vince? Uh, that's, that sounds great. And it's, um, it's great to be with you. And even though you and I have not been in the same office now for a couple of weeks and our whole staff is distributed around the place, um, it's good to be in, in conversation with you about some of these issues. Yeah. So one thing I think, um, one, one scary development that prompted this, although, you know, overall, um, we know from um, uh, history that emergencies are opportunities for the executive to seize power. Um, and one kind of starting point for this conversation could be um, this really powerful line that a federal appellate court wrote in um, a case we litigated called Hassan versus City of New York, which successfully challenged the NYPD's suspicionless surveillance of Muslims. And the court wrote this, we are left to wonder why we cannot see with foresight what we see so clearly with hindsight. Um, and it said that um, in um, comparing the most, this most recent episode of targeting Muslims to other really dangerous um, seizures of rights in the past, um, destructive rights, destroying roads this country has traveled before, uh, when, for example, targeting Jews during the Red Scare, African Americans during the Civil Rights Movement, and Japanese Americans during World War II. Um, so I think that's a really... Um, powerful sentiment. Um, and of course, we know uh, that we can predict uh, certain restrictions on rights. Um, and, um, you know, I think it's, it's worth 
uh, talking about them. And one very obvious example that has us concerned is a report that the Attorney General, Attorney General Barr, uh, is proposing legislation that has some fairly innocuous, that, around the administration of judge, justice, that has some fairly innocuous features like, you know, accommodating the rules of procedure to allow some more video conferencing, um, but has some pretty menacing features as well, including a provision that would allow any uh, chief judge of a particular district to shut down the courtrooms and any administration of justice, including uh, uh, criminal processing, including habeas corpus. Um, and I think that's very concerning because one thing that we um, have to think about when we think about um, crises is, um, and, and, and how it implicates rights, is a certain mythology around how this all works. Um, in the law, I think we are told that um, you know, during emergencies, rights get rolled back, but like a, like a rubber band, they snap back as soon as the emergency is over. Um, and what's, um, and that, that is a myth. That's been repeatedly proven to be a, a myth. There is no sort of um, snapping back dynamic fact. This tends to be a one-way ratchet. The more you restrict rights uh, following the emergency, rights restrictions continue. Um, what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's exactly right. I mean, that, that is a, a myth that we tell ourselves as a society and a democracy and as lawyers that um, all of the measures are going to be temporary for this emergency only. And it's, it, it's, a, it's a seductive narrative. And as you and I have talked about, um, it's particularly seductive in the context of a health-based narrative, a public, public health narrative, that, um, well, as soon as the COVID uh, situation gets resolved, we'll go back to normal. And, you know, I wanted to throw out a, a, a hindsight perspective, if I could, uh, that's, that speaks to this, and I think speaks to not only CCR's work and also the work of Michael Ratner in the context of a health um, emergency declaration. And that is, you know, is this is in the context of HIV and AIDS. And for over a year and a half, from 1991 to 1993, the United States government ran a special detention camp uh, called Camp Bulkley on its naval base in uh, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, which, of course, as listeners will know, um, houses uh, our Guantanamo uh, detainees that Bahar and uh, other folks at CCR currently represent. And at the time in the 1990s, the camp was represented essentially a uh, place to hold 310 Haitian men, women, and children who were prisoners in the world's first and only detention camp for refugees with HIV. And bizarrely enough, perhaps not surprisingly, but I think as we think about foresight, that we note that the Attorney General um, during uh, a range of this work was none only than William Barr. And so one thing that we can be clear about is that William Barr has never seen a public health crisis that he couldn't convert uh, to one that severely restricts the rights of folks, whether they are 
here domestically, whether they're migrants, refugees, or immigrants. Uh, that much is very clear. And we have to be very, very concerned about uh, the public health rationale, because you know there was so much hysteria around HIV and AIDS, as you know, in the 1990s, that people were willing to give up anything to keep themselves safe. Plus, there was the um, demonization and criminalization, essentially, of Haitian Americans, that in the same way um, that Trump is talking about this as the Chinese virus, meaning COVID-19, um, back in the 1990s, uh, there was a lot of rhetoric around HIV and AIDS being the Haitian virus. And it resulted in the illegal detaining of Haitian folks at a military base um, at the behest of the United States. And luckily, um, the Center for Constitutional Rights was on that case, and Michael Ratner, who uh, passed away now almost four years ago, which is hard to believe, uh, was the key litigator um, amongst the key litigators on that case. And the court closed that camp and released all 310 detainees. But the story, I think, they're looking at terms of foresight is that we have to expect that the public health narrative will be quickly converted, uh, metastasized into a global threat that from the point of the government will require A, the suspension of due process and the rule of law as, as we know it, B, the isolation targeting of certain groups, uh, that um, a mythological narrative will say will be the key people that are driving the health crisis and that they will be expecting the rest of us to be so afraid for our own health uh, that we will gladly uh, allow that to happen and say, well, thank goodness we have the government that's on it. And that sounds eerily like uh, what we were seeing just after 9-11. Yeah, and... Um you talk about Guantanamo's first iteration, of course, um, that's a good pivot point for talking about Guantanamo's resuscitation after 9-11, um, which Michael Ratner foresaw the dangers of, um, and um, as our friends all know, was the, the first to insist that individuals um, detained there be represented by CCR when few others would. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the, the, what, what happened to rights post 9-11 is instructive um, for, um, you know, in, in ways that should cause us to be concerned here, um, because both are sort of unconventional, longstanding, and assertedly existential threats. I mean, I do think COVID is an existential threat. I did not think 9-11 was an existential uh, threat. Um, so, you know, I think th there were some initial examples of successful responses to um, the human rights crisis created by the Bush administration's use of Guantanamo and of torture and of extraordinary rendition and of war, um, and some significant uh, civil rights victories, um, including marshalling and, you know, an army of other lawyers to respond to the threats posed by uh, the Bush administration's uh, human rights crisis. Um, 
But, you know, 20 years after Guantanamo and despite these early victories and, and, and even after what had developed as a worldwide consensus that Guantanamo was illegitimate, it remains open. In fact, courts have actually sanctioned or approved 18 years of indefinite and potentially lifetime detention without charge or trial for dozens of men who remain and maybe those who would be brought there in the future. Um, and you know, torture may have formally ended by the Obama administration as a matter of policy, but it remain, maintains unprecedented approval by the American public. Um, and so that causes me to, to wonder if our failure to really reckon and punish the human rights abuses in, in the past, this is looking backwards as a way of looking forward, um, and all of the lies central to the Iraq war, you know, ultimately desensitize the public to the truth um, and the, the, the value of remaining vigilant. And so one can wonder if the excesses of 9-11 actually, and the, uh, in that way, actually paved the road for, for Trump. Um, and, and given that, uh, we need to be mindful of all the ways in which um, rights seizures could be manipulated. We're closing the borders now and eliminating rights to asylum at, at, at the border. Will that necessarily go away anytime soon? Um, we're using sort of video arraignments instead of full due process for prisoners. But wouldn't that be convenient um, even after the pandemic uh, fades? Um, so, uh, and, and I think none of us here want to minimize the 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 horror and the fear and the legitimate need for actually government action. Um, this is a crisis like the Great Depression, not a crisis like 9/11, um, where uh, government resources at the federal level need to be marshaled. Um, so I, I think we're not we're in no way mean to minimize the the dangers to um, life and and loved ones, um, but. Um, still requires us to be uh, skeptical and vigilant about how this crisis could be manipulated. Yeah, I, tell, I, agree, with, I agree with that 100%. I, but I would, I would also add, I'm not sure that the human rights, um, that the human rights failure to effectively prosecute and eliminate uh, torture and the excesses um, are to blame here, uh, as we, we all do our best. And yes, those, um, those mechanisms will always rear their head. And I think part of the problem though, is that if you think about even you know, the past 30 years, how people reacted to uh, the AIDS crisis, how people reacted to 9-11 and how they're reacting to COVID-19, I mean, and, and I mean, everybody, people, um, it is a scary time and that really does give an opportunity for the state to step in and say, okay, we're going to fix this. We're going to settle this. We're going to make everybody safe. And that's actually what most people want the state to do. The problem is, is that there's a weaponization and that happens. And so both in the AIDS crisis and in the COVID-19 crisis, what people are yearning for is a public health solution um, that's grounded in science, that's grounded in 
um, in rationality, and that's distributed fairly. And that's where we run into problems in terms of rights, because the way that our, the, the mythologies within which we live in this country are one that because people, because the, the politics and the economy will not allow everyone to live in dignity, you have to create a rationality as to why you're treating some people differently than others. So that the CDC, for example, will come up with a regulation that says everybody has to be six feet apart, everybody has to wash their hands, everybody has to social distance, that makes sense. And, you know, God knows it was hard enough and continues to be hard enough to get um, governors around the country, much less the president of the United States, to say, yes, this seems to make sense. But even as it does begin to make sense, that's when we begin to see it's the application of the mechanisms that they're using that become the problem. So it is certainly possible and good to keep people safe and to do social distancing. And we see that businesses are doing it, human beings are doing it, but you cannot social, you can't comply with CDC guidelines uh, in our immigration detention system. And you cannot comply with CDC guidelines in our state or jail detention systems. And you can't even do it at Guantanamo. And that's where the exceptions begin to happen. They say, well, wait a minute, that we do want to keep you safe. But at some level, we have to maintain the criminalized bands, borders, walls that we've created. We can't let those things abate in favor of keeping us all safe. It's much better to keep us or a subset of the population much less safe and to keep those structures in place. And that's the tension that I think that yeah. we're at right now. But we have a bands, borders, and walls culture and the response, whether it's 9-11 um, or now, is to build them higher, to build them stronger, uh, to make them last forever. When in fact, the response, even in a public health crisis and maybe perhaps especially in a public health, health crisis, is to be able to take down some of those walls and to make people, uh, to, to have the state in a position where they're not creating danger for the people that are under its thumb, but they're actually uh, creating survival mechanisms for the people um, that should be back in society and sheltering um, and isolating themselves and keeping us safe. Right, I think you, you make a really good point. I mean, the, the sort of, we started this conversation around the sort of, uh, uh, classic civil libertarian fear of overreach, but you bring up the problem of underreach. The idea that the government is failing to provide adequate resources for those who are vulnerable, and that is the, the that is the flip side of affirmatively targeting. If you affirmatively leave people out of a pool of necessary resources, um, particularly those most vulnerable. Um, that is, um, you know, a, a, a rights violation. In, a, in, a, in another way, human rights violation in another way. Um, and I think you're right to also point out um, that uh, the state created dangers, that the state has already created in all of the systems of carceration that we have in this country. Um, and so, you know, our, our reflex to imprison and punish everyone, including immigration detainees, is going to you know, um, uh, multiply this public health crisis. And I think what we have here, hopefully, is an opportunity to see how um, this crisis has exposed all, uh, all manner of deep uh, social and economic problems in society that we now may hopefully have space to talk about when we're ready to.
Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I think, you know, just to, to, to further refine it, that the, the state underreach, right, not keeping us safe, not doing enough um, to put the uh, support measures in place is happening precisely because we're overreaching in other ways. And so our law enforcement response, which we now have to everything, and I think that's another uh, feature of um, post 9-11 that people have failed to even imagine now what a community-based, community-supported government response would be. It is all about law enforcement and um, mm -hmm. supporting uh, big corporations for the economy. But the law enforcement response requires, it absolutely requires a threat. And so, and the, the challenge is that the threat in the law enforcement response is always the people. It's the marginalized group. You have to criminalize somebody. They're responsible for this. You lock them up. You do these types of things. But we're in a situation now where the threat is actually the virus. And it creates an existential question for law enforcement, actually, as to uh, will we be able to give up our law enforcement response to a public health crisis or not? That is, the, that is really the democratic existential question. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Um, well, thanks, Vince, for joining me. Pleasure, as always, to um, talk with you about what's going on in the world. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on this ep episode of The Activist Files. Uh, and we hope that you and your loved ones stay well during this very um, disorienting and scary time. Please check out our website, ccrjustice.org, for um, a host of resources and um, uh, thoughts about uh, what we're doing uh, in this crisis and what you can be doing as well.